0: And by the way, it's one thing to look at one of my pictures in a book. It's entirely another to not only see it, but to taste it, to smell it, to touch it, and to hear it. And only when we get people outdoors do they truly have the fervent to become advocates for protecting biodiversity on Earth.
1: Episode 7, John Fielder. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Do you love adventure sports? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. We have a very special program for you today. Our guest is John Fielder. John Fielder has been a Colorado nature photographer for over 40 years. He has authored more than 40 coffee table and guidebooks, and he currently has a gallery in Denver, teaches photography. He has thousands and thousands of miles of backpacking and packing with llamas, backcountry skiing, river rafting. John Fielder, welcome to the program.
0: Hey, thanks for having me, Kirk.
1: So, John, I uh, gave a brief sketch of who you are for the listeners, but will you take a few minutes and tell us a little bit more about who you are and what your connection is to nature photography?
0: Sure. Well, I'm a city flicker kid from Charlotte, North Carolina, who had some amazing influences growing up. Um, First in the Appalachian Mountains in summer camp, and then a remarkable science teacher in middle school who took me and six other kids in her station wagon towing a pop up camper uh, for five weeks in the summers of my eighth and ninth grades um, visiting archaeological, biological, geological, paleontological places that we had studied all across the United States, down to Mexico one summer and up to British Columbia the next. And uh, and then my Uncle Fred ran a big company out here in Colorado, and he got me jobs working uh, on a cattle quarter horse ranch in high school. And then I was a prospector for gold, silver, and copper for his company in my college summers. And by the time I got out of Duke University with a degree in accounting, I made a beeline for Colorado in 19... 72, and even though my first career was in the department store business, believe it or not, um, when I was 31 with a wife and a child and another one on the way, I decided to turn my passion being outdoors and this budding um, avocation of photography into a career, and uh, that was about 35 years ago, and I was able to make it work.
1: Wow, that's exciting. You know, there are there are millions of guests out there who would like to do something similar um, to make a career out of their passion. So that's a, that's a beautiful thing that you've been able to do that.
0: I feel very fortunate. Uh, I'm very lucky, and, uh, yep, I wish everybody um, could make their jobs there, the joy of their lives.
1: Oh, absolutely. Why would you encourage people to get outdoors and to photograph?
0: Well, obviously, recreating outdoors is good for physical fitness, and physical fitness and a relationship with nature makes for good mental Health. So, you know, most of my my friends in my life are people who enjoy being outdoors too, and they tend to be more humble. They tend to get along with other people better. They tend to believe in things that are bigger than them. And um, if everybody was like that in the world, we wouldn't have so much death and dismemberment. Um, so, a relationship with nature promotes peace on
1: earth. You know, it's it's funny because on a previous podcast we were discussing the very same thing. So, you believe that when people connect when they connect back with nature that it changes their perspective on politics and the world and humanity in general?
0: You know, when they're connected with things permanent and not ephemeral and ever-changing. I mean, I love technology with my Canon cameras and my Lightroom processing program to edit my photos. um, I can do my job better than ever, and communicating with email and text messages makes life a lot more um, efficient than it has been. But uh, on the other hand, when one gets uh, infatuated with technology, and you know, which is always changing, you, you lose your sense of security, I think. And when people attach them th- themselves to things permanent, like the planet, which is about as permanent as things get, or it could be a religion, which is permanent. But when you attach yourselves to things that are not short-term, I think it just makes you more secure with yourself.
1: mm Yeah, good points. Well, John, tell us a story of one of your most amazing experiences that got you hooked on nature photography and backpacking and being out in the wilderness.
0: Well, I already mentioned the influences early on. summer camp in the Appalachian Mountains, this amazing middle school science teacher who just passed away a few months ago. I went back for her memorial service. She died at age 96, and she did this for 20 years, taking these kids on these amazing science and nature adventures, um, and all of us were influenced um, for the rest of our lives. And then, you know, my summer jobs in high school and college. But I had an art teacher, too, that, uh, among other things, taught me that you shouldn't worry about what other people think of your art, uh, but what just what does the art do for you? How does it change your life? And that was painting for me in high school and college. And when I got to Colorado, the paintbrushes and the palettes and the paints weren't um, appropriate for exploring the Colorado Rockies. So I rented a 35 millimeter camera in the early 70s and discovered a man named Elliot Porter who was the color Ansel Adams of the 20th century. And he had a way of seeing the landscape and photographing that I thought was remarkable. And I wanted to be just like him. So I took this rented 35 millimeter camera and a couple of rolls of uh, what was then called Kodachrome 25 film and left Denver at 2.30 in the morning, drove to the Sangre de Cristo mountains, which since then became a wilderness, the Sangre de Cristo wilderness of central Colorado. And Hiked up in the dark to 12,500 feet, made these extraordinary, what I thought were extraordinary photos of sunrise. Just like Elliot Porter, came back later in the day, drove back to Denver, had the film processed. You know, they used to send Kodachrome to some other side of the planet because it took four days where they had special labs. I still don't know where they sent Kodachrome to be processed, but four days later, you get your slides back. And I looked at my slides, and not only did they not look any good, they didn't look like Porter's work, nor did they look like what I saw. And so that began this continuing process that I'm doing 40 years later of discovering this language or relationship between how your eye sees and how film and even digital sees your environment. And that's critical to ultimately making uh, pleasing photos. So that was the epiphany for me back in 1973 in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains of Colorado.
1: You know, I've been a follower of your work now for, oh, probably 25 years. And one of the things I love about it is the way that you capture unique lighting on your subject, you know, whether it's a mountain lake with, with snowy peaks in the background or a field of flowers with some sort of a a mountain, you know, vista behind it, you always seem to capture the right light. So, you know, I would say that over time, you you certainly figured it out.
0: Well, every dog has its day. You do something frequently enough and anybody can get Good at it. You know, people tell me all the time in a complimentary way, you're so talented, but you know, it's really strong legs in nature photography and practice makes perfect. Um, and in the beginning, I chose not to go to photography school, not to read a whole lot of books. I didn't have the time or the resources to do that in that other career and raising a family. And I chose instead just the process of trial and error. So those slides that I got back from the Sangre de Cristo mountains, I would study them fastidiously on the light table and look at them and look at Elliot Porter's book that I was fascinated with called in Wildness's The Preservation of the World and try to understand why his photos were so much more evocative of what he saw um, than mine of what I saw, and each photo would be analyzed. You know, what did I do wrong? But also, what did I do? Did what did I do right? And I would try to give myself credit for the good things. And that process allowed me to understand the technical aspects of what I was doing as well as the um, the artistic. So, uh, yeah, I I've gotten better at what I do, but. I'm now 64 years old, and I have no doubt tomorrow morning up here in Summit County looking out my window right now at the Gore Range in twilight that I can get even better photos tomorrow morning than I would have gotten 40 years ago from the same place.
1: You know, you mentioned that you started out with a 35-millimeter camera. Um, What formats have you used since then, and what do you use now?
0: Well, I pretty quickly moved into medium format and then even more quickly into large format. And large format is uh, four by five inches or larger of sheet film, cut sheet film. And uh, most landscape photographers, other than Adams, who you know was a black and white photographer, used transparency films that most people would buy as slides, but we could buy it as cut sheet film. So I started with uh, Ektachrome 64, and then when Fuji got into the film business, most of us switched to Fujichrome Velvia film. And that large format camera, which, by the way, in the low Super Trekker, pack that cinema photographer Greg Lowe invented back in the 70s, which became the perfect pack for carrying 65 pounds of large format German Linhof field camera, view camera, 30 sheet film holders, seven and a half lenses, and a bunch of accessories, as well as a tripod mounted on the pack. You know, that that was what I hauled on my back for most of my career which is why I'm sporting a couple of titanium joints right now and thank goodness when my body started to break up about seven or eight years ago um, digital became better than film and I switched to digital and um, use a Canon system because my first 35 millimeter was a Canon F1 and I am uh, a kid in a candy store right now because I just ordered last week the new Canon 5DS-R which is a point. megapixel um, SLR and it's going to allow me, you know, Canon's LeapFog and Nikon's 36 megapixel and I'm sure Nikon will LeapFog Canon, but it's because I sell so many 10-foot fine art prints and even larger from my gallery, you know, the more detail, the better in these camera systems and even though it's not as much as what the 4x5 transparency could manifest in terms of resolution, we're getting really close to what the film could do for me.
1: You know, 50-plus megapixels just sounds amazing to me. And I, I think it probably far exceeds what 35mm could do, but you're saying it's still not quite up to the large format that you shot on film.
0: Well, this is 35mm, even though there's digital medium format cameras out there that are seven megapixel. Right. This is a camera just the size of my Canon 5D Mark II. They've just figured out a way how to make the pic- individual pixels smaller and to have now what will be about over 8,500 pixels across the frame and about uh, 6,000 up and down and that you know the more pixels is just like the more grains of silver that existed in the film each grain of silver was a detail of information just like each pixel and the more you've got the larger of a print you can make um, even when people step up closely to it you know it looks sharp and that adds and that's one way to add integrity to a photo and make it more realistic but the uh, old 4 by 5 film had uh, About um, 4,000 pieces of silver across one way and 3,000 the other, and it just had more inherent resolution in it. But this new digital Canon is going to be pretty darn close to what the film was.
1: Well, you know, another thing that I picked up there is you're talking about carrying 60-plus pounds of camera equipment on your back. What did you eat? (laughs) Did you have a tent or a sleeping bag?
0: You know, in the early days, uh, it was just me and one other person, and that other person would carry, you know, both of our sleeping bags, the tent, and uh, all of our food. And then I would, I had this low pack had these modules you could strap on, you know, for carrying additional survival gear along with the camera equipment. So, you know, I was backpacking in the 80s, you know, in California and Washington, in the Sierras and the Cascades with over a hundred pounds, but that is not good. You can't. You know, half of nature photography is good eye and being at the right place at the right time, but you can't do any of that unless you feel good. So, you know, these are long days. Getting up early in the morning at 445 and not going to bed until 10 o'clock and backpacking 10 miles or more per day. How you eat, how you dress, how you deal with what nature throws at you, cold, hot, wet, whatever, is really just as important. Feeling good, that is, as the equipment or your eye or being at the right place at the right time. So what I did quickly once you know, I was able to finance it was hire four, five, six young people, men and women, uh, high school, college or older, who would carry um, all of the other stuff, the gear, the food, and I would carry this 65-pound pack filled with camera gear. The only problem was everybody else's packs would lighten up during the week. Mine stayed the same weight.
1: <laughs> so you didn 't eat your cameras
0: uh, you know, I was tempted to eat the graze on the tundra at times, but no, these with that system, and I was probably the only large format wilderness photographer in the whole country that did it that way, and that allowed me ultimately to go farther, faster, and for longer into the absolute middle of nowhere. Um, really, than anybody else in North America because of that system.
1: I think that's probably a lot of the reason why you've been so successful with your photography. It really is an amazing thing to to view your your photography over the years. Um, You know, I think there are a lot of budding photographers out there who think that it'd be just great to stroll into the woods and take a few pictures and sell them and make some money. But what you've just outlined here is that it takes a lot of dedication and planning and a lot more effort than a lot of people might think. You've earned every bit of your success.
0: Well, when you get into the marketing, you know, that's the other half of the equation. Um, it's one thing to take a pretty picture. It's another to be able to sell it. And my background in life was perfect for what ultimately I had to do, which was to feed a family, put three kids through college and you know, have money left over for new view camera lenses. And, and my background with an accounting degree, gave me the skills to be able to manage a business. And then my background in the department store business as a merchant, a seller, um, helped me develop the natural instincts of being able to market and merchandise and not be shy, which a lot of artists are, and to believe that you know your product, my product, which was nature photography, would in fact make people's lives better. And that gives you the competence to, to hustle and to promote. And uh, so really, the key to my success has been, you know, a good eye and all those other things we talked about logistically, but, you know, my ability to market market my work.
1: That really is key. So what you're saying there is that photographers would really benefit from a business degree.
0: Absolutely. and uh, And again, marketing skills, business and managing a business is one thing. But, you know, in the very beginning, I said to myself that, it was very simple what I needed to do I needed to figure out who wanted what my product was which was nature photography in what form would they want it what price would they pay for it and how do I find these people that uh, ultimately would buy my product and even today you know 35 years later I get this question from young photographers trying to do what I did back then and I tell them you know I can't really tell you a thing because the marketplace is so different now. In my day, it was coffee table books because there were tons of bookstores. It was stock photography, which no longer exists because photos are cheap and ubiquitous on the web. And today it's different. It's You've got to find a whole another way to market your work and in completely different versions than what we did back then. But I say the, the answer is still the same. You've got to know what you do discover who wants what you do, and then how do you connect yourself to that person?
1: Well, thanks for that advice. That's really good for people that are interested in taking up photography or other arts. I think it it really matters that they're smart about it and that they understand the the current marketplace.
0: It might be good for people who are uh, manufacturing and selling uh, backpacking stoves.
1: (laughs) You bet. Absolutely. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is sponsored by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premium backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, 180TAC has the tools you need. You can visit 180TAC at www.180TAC.com. Acclaimed nature photographer John Fielder invites you to attend one of his popular Colorado photo workshops. Got an expensive camera? Get a return on your investment by learning how to use it. John will cut you to the chase by showing you his fabulous five camera settings. That's all you'll need. Then learn from the best how to use your eye to compose photos along secret roads in one of John's favorite Colorado places, guaranteeing you amazing images. Great food, great scenery, and great fun at sunrise and sunset. Visit johnfielder.com for the complete 2015 schedule. Hey guys, will you help us make the Adventure Sports Podcast successful? Take a few minutes to rank us on iTunes and leave a review. Subscribe, rank, review. Thanks. So John, we've been talking about the photography and the business side of this quite a bit, which is really interesting, but what we need to remind our listeners of is what we started with in the bio in the beginning, is that you have thousands upon thousands of miles of backpacking in wilderness. There are very few people that can lay claim to that kind of a record, and I'm sure you had a lot of adventures along the way, besides just taking pictures. Will you share with us a story about a time that things didn't go as planned? A little bit more adventurous than you would have expected. How did you manage that? And what advice might you have for our listeners based on what you learned from these experiences?
0: Well, there are a lot of, a lot of stories. Uh, maybe it'd be easiest just to start with the most recent disaster. Um, by the way, for your listeners, you know, for my photography and to survive 40 years of being in the middle of nowhere, preparation is everything. So in the case of photography, studying topographic maps and trying to imagine what a place looks like visually before I ever get there and then planning my trips based on those alpine lakes and the um, precipitousness of the ridges and could I cross over that mountain ridge at 13,000 feet and get from one high lake to another, all of that planning and then the logistics of the food and the gear that I took and the help that I had, you know, was critical to my success and critical to being able to be spontaneous, you know, with all that planning. So good planning begets spontaneity and in photography and mountain climbing and exploring the wilderness, spontaneity, if you're going to have fun and enjoy your experiences, everything. So with that said, the most recent experience was uh, one of my re- most recent trips last july i decided to uh take two llamas and by the way i've been backpacking with or packing with llamas for over 30 years i have used them on trips where trails are more common because most of what i do is bushwhacking and backpacking better for that but llamas go almost anywhere so i took two llamas up to the sawtooth wilderness in idaho up place that i had coveted all my life never been to and near uh, stanley idaho and gonna do i was gonna do about eight days in the sawtooth and then drive 13 hours to the abcirca Beartooth wilderness near red lodge montana so i pack up these llamas, and first night first day was pretty easy it was about uh six miles maybe from the trailhead to sawtooth lake which is in the north end of the range and then the next day was going to be you know, a fast 15 miles down to uh, South Fork of the Payette River and then up into another glacial cirque with lakes 15 miles later. Well, on day two, descending down to South Fork of the Payette, um, I hadn't done my research, and the Forest Service had not cleared the trail from down uh, down timber and up there in Idaho versus Colorado. The trees are a heck of a lot bigger, and there were trees four or five feet in diameter covering the trails and no way to go around them except to remove Um, 85 pounds worth of panniers from the llamas so that they could jump like elk up and over rocks and through bushes, bushwhacking, and around these trees. And by the end of that day, uh, one llama Hector was so exhaustive, he actually got heat stroke. I discovered after d- describing the symptoms a week later to my llama outfitter, who I read from, that he uh, he had got heat stroke and he quit on me and sat down. And now I'm in the, you know, 20 miles in the middle of the sawtooth wilderness. I've got 170 pounds on two llamas and about 25 pounds of camera gear on my back. So that's 200 pounds that one llama and one human. Now got to figure out what to do with. And that begat a... Uh, Three-day odyssey of going back and forth: A, trying to rescue this llama after I abandoned him in the wilderness, and B, trying to get all this valuable gear um, either to the next drainage over the mountain or down to uh, a point to reconnoiter. And ultimately, what happened was I had to, I abandoned the llama. I went down eight miles. Ultimately, in three days, I actually had to uh, pack. 40 miles in addition to what I was going to pack anyway on this week-long trip. and A lady who I'd met the first day and her kids um, actually grabbed the llama that I had abandoned at this uh, alpine drainage and uh, took him up over the path I was supposed to be, a, be, a, be going over the next day and took him down to uh, what's called Redfish Red Lake. I went back up the next day thinking that I I thought the llama was going to come down to me and the other llama because llamas are communal. He never showed up, so I went up to grab him the next day. He was gone. Other backpackers told me this lady had taken him over the pass. I now end up 12 miles away down the drainage at uh, what's called the Sawtooth Lodge. I get to the Sawtooth Lodge and there's a message for me from Redfish Stables, a horse stable on the other side of the mountain range, that the son of this lady has gone down ahead of the family saying, yeah, we're going to try to drag this, or how should we say a push and drag this llama down to the stables so John can come rescue him. And uh, so I recruit the managers of the lodge to take me over at midnight. The next night, Sunday, to go get the llama. I discovered the llama in the dark at the stables. Yes, they'd left him there for me. Um, Bottom line is we were able to save the llama. Um... I was able to manage 200 pounds of gear on my back and on the top of the other llama. I let the llama recover for a couple of days, eating grass and drinking water. We then headed 13 hours to Absorca Beartooth Wilderness in Montana, which is now grizzly country, um, to do the same thing for another week. And guess what? On day four, the llama quit on me again. Oh, no. Had to do the same thing all over again. So after uh, 10 days of absolute disaster and relatively few photos, I gave up, headed home to Colorado, and uh, ultimately the llama recovered later in the fall. Last fall, he uh, was used for a hunting group, and uh, he recovered. But llamas actually can either die or be disabled for the rest of their lives with heat strokes. So this is just one curve of about 100 stories of self-rescue in the middle of nowhere.
1: Wow. I think uh, a lot of people might think, well, you you know, the the getting caught in adverse weather conditions or, or finding yourself off-route in a a bad place might be what would come to mind, but working with these llamas and having to go, wow, I mean, that's crazy.
0: I've got plenty of backpacking stories that don't have to do with llamas, but uh, uh, I have so many great llama stories, including another one maybe that I'll tell the next time I'm on your podcast about the llama who did three three frontal full-body flips that 12,600 feet and landed below at 11,800 feet, crusading down an icy slope and survived to work for me for six more days. But should we save that for the next podcast?
1: (laughs) Sounds fantastic. So what I hear you saying here is that you would still recommend llamas very highly.
0: You know, for people who like to walk and, uh, you know, my doctors don't like me carrying all that gear on my back. They are the best uh, pack animal out there. They're, you know, bred to be in the Alpine zone. They don't require any feed. They feed off of tundra grasses and bark and uh, you you take no feed for them and they're dromedaries so they don't need a lot of water. I can be on a mountain ridge at 13,000 feet to photograph sunrise and sunset and I don't have to take water for them because they're good to go for 36 hours so yeah just great creatures easy to get along with they're not spirited like horses much easier to manage their feces is just like elk pellets so they don't um you know leave a mess in the wilderness And their soft cloven hooves you know same way they don't damage the tundra so it's they're great creatures in fact i like to say some of my best friends on the planet are llamas
1: well it sounds like it would be a lot of fun to work with them that's for certain Um, what advice would you have for our listeners based on some of these experiences? Uh, You already mentioned being very prepared. Um, When it comes to llamas in particular, how can someone get a llama to work with in the wilderness?
0: You know, in the western states, there's usually a handful of llama outfitters who rent you llamas. Um, uh, In Colorado, we've got a couple. There's a couple up in Wyoming, another one in Montana that I know of. So that's, a, hey, you've got to find llamas, and there's uh, breeders and outfitters, you know, who train llamas to be pack animals that you can rent them from, and they'll teach you in the morning how to, how to pack with them and even rent you um, a llama trailer. So, yeah, it's just Google llamas. That's a good way to figure out how to get started in the llama um, packing
1: business. So do you currently work with people who are interested in photography? Uh, do you teach people how to do this wilderness work?
0: One of the ways that I make my living is teaching photo workshops. I teach uh, maybe eight or nine for pay workshops every year and a bunch of charity workshops to raise money for nonprofits. And, yeah, people go to my website, johnfielder.com. There's a list of workshops every year with complete description of them and prices. And um, I love teaching. I love sharing what I learned by the seat of my pants with other people. And and we get people to... uh, you know we cut people to the chase on which bells buttons and whistles on their cameras are relevant cuz 90 8% of all the things sophisticated digital cameras can do are irrelevant really to nature photography and what's practical. And then and then, most importantly, I teach composition and design and the artistic side of photography. So the workshops are one, two, or three days. Sometimes we get exotic and take people around the world if I um, am not too lazy. And, and we have a lot of fun. Everybody comes home with great pictures. We have really good food service. We usually cater four-star food out into the field. Um, we drink red wine because I've discovered over the years, Kurt, that everything's better with a little buzz on, including photography.
1: <laughs> you know, I I often tell my kids it's so much better to learn things the easy way by listening to someone else who's been there than to learn it the hard way by doing it yourself. I'm sure there's a little bit of a mix that has to happen in every life, but what an opportunity to work with John Fielder on photography. All these years of experience, it, it that would be amazing. Very, very neat.
0: I have fun, too. It's, uh, you know, as much fun to give as it is to receive, as they say.
1: So tell us a little bit about your company. Um, I know that you have a gallery and you've published over 40 books and you have calendars and posters and all sorts of things. But tell us more about that.
0: Well, I'm an entrepreneur and uh, yeah thirty five years ago I started my own publishing company as a way to make my living and I not only published you know my own books but I published hundreds of other nature photographers and writers and then I sold that company when I decided to move from Denver up to Summit County, Colorado, and be a little more independent and then I started a company called John Fielder Publishing, and I published one or two books a year in my calendars and Um, You know, I learned how to find graphic designers and editors and and printing companies, you know, to do what needs to be done to get a book into the marketplace, and I hired sales reps. So that's what I do now, but on a smaller scale than I used to. Um, And then I have a gallery, uh, John Fielder's Colorado, which has a sister gallery called Denver Photo Art in a beautiful 6,000-square-foot historic building in Denver's Art District on Santa Fe Drive at 833 Santa Fe Drive, and we uh, display my work and also that of a dozen other outstanding uh, photographers. And then, you know, finally we have John Fielder Photography Workshops, which we um, just talked about. So that's the main way that I make my living out of uh, out of being in Paradise.
1: <laughs> there aren't many people that can claim that.
0: It, uh, you know, what? Where well, there's a will, there's a way. I enjoy talking to kids, high school, college, whatever. So follow their passion, and, and that's the key word is passion. When you got a passion, you can do anything, and it just takes per- perseverance and common sense and a little bit of financial backing, and um, there's no limit to what one can do.
1: At the Adventure Sports Podcast, it's important to us to encourage people to get out into nature and encounter it in a responsible way that they can really enjoy, whether their sport is you know, touring on motorcycles or, or mountain biking or backpacking. Maybe it's rock climbing, ice climbing, mountaineering. It could be skydiving, right? Um, but we really want people to connect with nature. And, you know, you've brought nature to a lot of people that may have difficulty connecting otherwise. And uh, it really is a life well lived. Uh, I I love the way that you have um, helped people to appreciate what nature has to offer. We really believe that until people know nature then they don't have the appreciation necessary to try to care for nature. And so I would like to applaud you on that point.
0: Thank you, and I bet that leads you to your next question.
1: John, how does your sport and your company benefit individuals or society as a whole?
0: That's a really good question, Kurt. And actually, it's the most important thing we're going to talk about tonight because it's not about making a living. Yes, we all have to make a living and feed our families. It's not about cameras. It's not about uh, the joy of the art form. Yep. That's a part of it, and that makes life good. But um, for me, it's as much about making sure that my kids, and now i got a couple of grandkids, have the opportunity to be outdoors and experience what you and I have been enjoying in our lives for the reasons that we've talked about, that it's just plain good for people to connect with nature and good for the perpetuation of our species. So um, half of my time is spent... developing advocacy and raising money for uh, both environmental and humanitarian nonprofits because unless people are healthy, happy, and prosperous, nature doesn't get protected. So my most of my books um, and all of my slideshows, I do 50 speaking engagements a year, most not money slideshows mostly with beautiful music raise money through book sales 30% of all my book sales at these events go back to sponsoring nonprofits that benefit planet earth or benefit humanity Um, ticket sales I take none of that Um, I do everything I can both to engage people in the joy of discovering nature. And by the way, it's one thing to look at one of my pictures in a book. It's entirely another to not only see it, but to taste it, to smell it, to touch it, and to hear it. And only when we get people outdoors do they truly have the fervent to become advocates for protecting biodiversity on Earth. So getting people outdoors and making money symbiotically for um, organizations that work on those things and again humanitarian causes because again when people are not healthy happy and prosperous societies don't have the wherewithal to protect wilderness to protect nature and uh, that's a big part of the formula
1: that is fantastic good words of advice and i'm glad to hear that you are um so actively involved in the in the good fight trying to get people out there to appreciate what this planet has to offer and what nature can do for us John, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So sure. You bet. Do you have um, any discounts or special promotions for our listeners?
0: Yeah. Um, I do believe my products, my photography can influence people and help them find an easy way to get outdoors. I got some great guidebooks for that purpose. So I'm uh, happy to offer 10% off to anybody who visits my gallery in Denver. Um, my fine art prints, my books, my calendars, my posters, my note cards, um, Anytime from now until kingdom come come to the gallery, tell them you heard about me and heard my podcast, and uh, you can have ten percent off.
1: John, thank you very much for that. Our listeners can really benefit from that too if if uh listeners, if you don't have one of John fielder's books or or pictures on your wall, then I think that you're missing out you need to do that so. Definitely take advantage of that offer, 10% off of anything. That's pretty cool. So uh, do you have any parting words for our listeners?
0: Um, Kurt, your questions have been so outstanding that I can't think of a single thing um, (laughs) for them to learn more about what I do, um, what I photograph, um, what I try to benefit, um, go to johnfielder.com. It's a good way to keep up with me. There's a Facebook site too you can go to for John Fielder's Colorado and uh, I will see you on the trail.
1: John, thank you very, very much for your time and listeners. We'll catch you on the next podcast. Thank you for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This has been your host, Kurt Linville, and this podcast is brought to you by 180 TAC. Hey friends, don't miss out on the family fun that is the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness this summer. Paragus Northwoods Company, located at the edge of the wilderness in LA, Minnesota, is a leading supplier of fun for families and friends in the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Paragus supplies the canoes and the camping gear that makes a wilderness adventure so easy and so enjoyable. Find them online at paragus.com. That's P-I-R dot com, or pick up the phone and talk to their outfitting department at 1-800-223-6565 1-800-223-6565 would you like to be a guest on an upcoming show just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us